so glad to see you here this morning. I want to, uh, before we get into our next to last message in the book of Luke, I want to talk to you about a couple of things. One, um, I am just so grateful for the families and newer families that God's brought here to, to, that are attending and that are, that are coming, and we're so grateful. And um, I think when you come to a new church and you, and you try to figure it all out, it's, it's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to figure out a new church. Um, many of you come from other churches, and it's hard to leave a church family to come to a new church, and that's always a tough transition. Um, we are going to, the first two Sundays of October, at 9.30, um, that's the 2nd and the 9th, offer what we do periodically. It's called our Getting to Know JIBC class. And um, that, that will give some of you that are wondering about the church a little bit more opportunity to come interact, um, ask questions, um, learn a little bit more about our church. Um, I think it's important that you know when you go to church what kind of doctrine they're teaching. I think it's, I hope it's apparent from what you hear from the pulpit each week, but, but to interact with that, ask questions, to know why we do things the way that we do, and we make no, make no um, pretense. We don't think we do it perfectly, but there are certain things we do a certain way. So maybe, maybe you would like to be a part of that class. I invite you to join us. It's going to be in the teen room October 2nd and October 9th at, at 9.30. Um, I want to share with you what's taken place in this building on Wednesday nights. How many of you have the opportunity to be here on a Wednesday night? Um, this past Wednesday, we had 130 kids here for Awana. If that seems like a lot, that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. Um, we had 130 kids and we had some leaders walking out like this. <laughs> um, no, it was a great night. That's 130 kids who are age four through sixth grade, to, to bring that into perspective. For the first time that I can remember with Awana, and, and I've been around here for, for like as longer than Dirt's been here, um, for the first time I can remember, we have actually had to turn kids away on the van. And we're trying to figure out how to get them all here, um, which is really a great problem to have. On top of that, Impact had 30 teens and 10 leaders. You start adding the numbers together. We had 240 people in this building on Wednesday night. And um, I'm not saying that to brag on, oh, look at what JIBC is doing. I am saying that so that you will praise the Lord with me for the mission field that he's bringing to us. Um, one of the things that's kind of scary is I think in talking with Pastor Andy, you had regular kids who weren't here that night. I know we had regular kids in Awana that weren't here that night. That's kind of scary in a way. Um, it's a good kind of scary. But um, I would ask you to pray. Some of you can't be here, and I get that, but this can be part of your ministry by praying for it. And there's some specific things that we can be praying for on Wednesday nights. When we have that many kids in the building, pray for the leaders to all be healthy and able to be here. Because, because it may seem like we have this great staff of leaders, and I know we are blessed with a lot of people serving, but it just takes one or two people in one group to not be here on a certain night, and, and it's like, oh, we got chaos. So pray for the health of those who are serving. Um, 
pray that God would raise up some more people who want to join. And if you are at all interested in working in, in ministry and, and want a place to plug in, this might be a good place. Come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Andy. Um, I kind of, I don't think people knew I did this on Wednesday night, but I was walking around in Awana, and I went in and I listened to the large group time. So large group time for the third, third grade through sixth grade is right in this room, and the, they, they all sit in the center section of the seats, and they're taught. And for the Sparkies, which is kindergarten through second grade, they all sit in that section at a different time. And I came, and I just kind of stood in the back, and I listened. And one of the things that just absolutely warmed my heart is both of those small group times were centered primarily on sharing the gospel and putting it at a kid's level. And that just, that's awesome to me. Because, because our kids are getting inundated with so much, whether they're teenagers, whether they're kindergartners, they're getting hit with so much in the world, and what they really need is Jesus. And what they really need to know is that, that Christ loves them, that he died for them, that, that they can live for his glory. And I'm so thankful that that's happening. So just wanted to share that with you. And now I want to take us to Luke chapter 24 this morning. Luke chapter 24. And we saw last week that, that the death of Christ left his followers really confused left them in a state of doubt and confusion. So much so that we saw, and look with me at verse 11, so much so that after the report is made that Christ has risen from the dead, here is what his followers, this is, this is the 11 who have spent three years with him, okay? They, they've seen some really amazing stuff. We've seen it as we've gone through Luke, right? They've seen him take you know, just a little bit of food and turn it into food that could feed 5,000 men and the women that were there and the children as well. They've seen him raise people from the dead. They have seen Jesus do amazing things. They've heard him tell them that he was going to rise from the dead after three days. But then look at verse 11. When they're told that Christ has risen, these words seem to them an idle tale, foolishness stupidity. That's what it seemed to them. And they did not believe them. You know, it was like a bad joke. And I think you and I might be tempted to think, you know, had I been there, that wouldn't have happened to me. But here's the thing. They, without even realizing it, even though Jesus had warned them over and over, they had made Jesus into something that he wasn't going to be for them. In their minds, they had made him into that. And in their minds, even though they knew that he had said, I'm not here to take on Rome, I'm not here to overthrow Rome, I am here to serve, I am here to lay down my life, I'm here to do all these things. They had heard it, and they had heard it over and over, and even Peter was wise enough early on to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he confessed him as the Messiah, and, and even though they had that head knowledge, and they, they had that kind of growing belief in their heart, when it came down to it, whenever the rubber met the road, they failed the test, didn't they? They did. And here's the thing. You and I can take Jesus and we can make him to be what we want him to be. How do we do that? Well, we turn Jesus into our 
our personal little God that we can pull out and just use him however we need in a certain situation. You ever been guilty of doing that? Okay? I mean, country songs have been written about it. After all, Jesus, take the wheel. I mean, how stupid. I said it. <laughs> it's not like that good bluegrass you play, right, Ed? They never get dumb, do they? <sighs> We can turn Jesus into be whoever we want him to be as long as he takes care of us in our need. And that's not what Jesus promised to be. That's not who he said he was going to be. And yet we do that. And when we do that, what happens is we set ourselves up for major disappointment. Because here's what happens. Life hits us hard. Life punches, and it doesn't fight fair. And so when life hits us, and, and we're reeling because, and we're staggering because of life's blows, if we don't have a clear understanding and knowledge of exactly who Jesus is and what he's promised to do, we're going to turn him into be something like, okay, now it's time for you to come here and just rescue me out of this situation. And we get really disillusioned whenever we don't see him rescuing like we think he should. And if you're honest with yourself, you've been in that place before. Our text today deals with this idea of confusion and doubt. It deals with how it's properly connected. We're going to meet a couple people who, who actually are leaving town. They're so full of doubt. They're, they're done. They're walking away. But praise God in this text this morning, it also deals with how to correct our confusion deals with what we need to correct our confusion and have clarity restored. So, with that in mind, Luke chapter 24, verse 13, I'm going to read down to verse 35 this morning. It's kind of a lengthy text. It's some narrative, but, but it's, it's really good stuff. And so follow along with me as I read. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Stop for a second. If you don't think God has a sense of humor, pay attention to the next few verses. Okay? Here is Jesus incognito, and he is going to play along with this for a while. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Like, where have you been, under a rock? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped... If you mark in your Bible, mark those words, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had, they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but they did not see him. And he said to them, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Mark this word, mark all. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Let's pray this morning. Father, I pray that this morning that you would bring this word alive to us. You tell us that your word is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, but our hearts can be pretty dull. And, And we don't even understand the significance of your word at times, or we forget, or we doubt. So this morning, guard our hearts from doubt. Forgive us for doubting your truth, which we all do. And God, it's my prayer that by the time we leave here this morning, that we, like those two on the road to Emmaus, may have our hearts lit on fire, that our hearts may burn within us because we have heard the words of Christ this morning. We ask this because we are needy. We ask this because we are lacking. And we ask this because you are the great supplier. In Christ's name, amen. So this morning, here's the outline. I want you to see first in verses 13 through 24 the confused hearts and understand that there was no understanding. Secondly, I want you to see in verses 25 to 30 Christ's correction. He is the source of understanding. And then in verses 31 to 35, I want you to see clarity and conviction restored. And I want you to see what happens when there's understanding. Understanding takes action. When, when your heart's been lit on fire, it takes action. So let's take a, take a look at these confused hearts and, and try to understand and unpack these confused hearts. So Luke, as he's recording this, makes it very clear to us that very day, in verse 13, that very day, the day that would be the Lord's day, that would be Sunday. Sunday afternoon, a lot has already happened in the morning. There's been a lot of rumors going around but, but that, by that afternoon, there are two who are, who are Jesus followers, okay? We know this because they know a lot about him. They're very aware of what's happening. They, they had some thoughts about him. They, they had claimed him as, as the one that they were following. They decide, you know what? <laughs> there has been nothing but just disappointment and gloom in Jerusalem. We're going home. We're going home. We're done. It's interesting that there's no historical record of a city named Emmaus. There are several villages that are seven miles from Jerusalem, and we can conjecture which one it is. 
Most likely it's a village towards the north of Jerusalem. So don't make much about Emmaus and the name because there really isn't much there to make of. Okay? All we know is this. They're on a seven-mile journey in the afternoon out of Jerusalem, and they are downcast. They are hurting. It's a good thing that Jerusalem sits high because they're all walking downhill because if they had to walk uphill, they probably couldn't make the seven-mile trip. They're so discouraged. Beginning in verse 14, we see that they are reviewing what has happened. We have two individuals who are talking. Verse 18 names one of them as Cleopas. He could be, he could be the same guy mentioned in John chapter 19 as Clopas, the husband of Mary, the mother of James the Younger. But we don't know. We really don't know who these guys are. Could be a man and a woman. If it's Clopas, it's probably his wife with him. We don't know who the other party is, but they're going to a house together. I'm assuming it's a husband and a wife. I could be wrong. Whoever they are, though, they're rehashing the whole events of the week. They're probably starting with, with the week prior and Jesus' triumphal entry and how maybe they were there and they were a part of that great throng coming into Jerusalem. And man, can you imagine what that was like? And it was just awesome to be a part of that. And, and it just seemed like whenever he came into Jerusalem, like things were about to really happen. Then they maybe are rehashing the fact I don't know if they were there or not, but they had heard the tale of, yeah, and then he went to the temple, and he just like totally upset Caiaphas's whole operation there in the temple. And as they were building towards Passover, you could just feel in, in their minds as they're talking, the political tensions getting greater in there in Jerusalem, and, and then maybe they're talking and they're saying, we should have been able to see it, we should have known something like this was going to happen, we should have seen the signs, why didn't we warn him? And then they start talking about the arrest and how, how that was just so unfair and about the trial and then the crucifixion. And now there's this report of an empty tomb, but I don't think he's alive. It's interesting that in verse 16, Luke records this. They're kept from understanding. They're kept from understanding. If you ever doubted the sovereignty of God, that God does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, look at this kind of verse right here. But, but it's interesting to note that this is, not, this is not out of the norm with the resurrected Christ. I can look at at least two other illustrations when Christ has been resurrected where he wasn't recognized right away. Mary Magdalene thought he was the gardener when she came back to the garden of Gethsemane, or the garden where he was buried, Right? She thought he was the gardener. She didn't recognize him as Christ. And even the disciples, when they're at the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 21, a place where Jesus had talked to them from the shore, even when they're there, they don't recognize right away that it's Jesus who's talking to them from the boat, or from the shore as they're out in the boat. So this is not out of the norm. But what I find so heartwarming about this is, is here are these two people and they are lower than low. You ever been lower than low? You ever been confused? You look around, you're like, I just don't understand what's going on here. Maybe you're like this. We, we, we think God, we think as a family, I think as an individual, that we're doing everything you've called us to do. We're trying to do it. We know we're not perfect in it, but we are trying, God. And it seems like everywhere we go, we're hitting, we're hitting brick walls. We're being told no at every turn. You ever been there? 
And as they're talking that way, what I find so comforting is this. Who comes to them in their confusion? Are they searching for Jesus? No, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're, they're leaving. The reports are that, is that he's risen from the dead, that he's been seen in the Jerusalem area, and, and they're so disillusioned that they are leaving town. And what does Jesus do? He comes to them. Friend, if you're in doubt right now, there's hope for you because Christ comes to those. <laughs> he does. He comes. I see it right here. He comes to them in their confusion. And, and, and can we just recognize that for what that is? That is the grace and love and kindness of our God. That's what that is. Do they deserve to have Jesus come to them? Not really. It's not that they've earned it. This is grace. I, I, I do find this next section kind of funny, though. Here's Jesus listening to them as they're getting him totally wrong. Have you ever been praying and realized as you're praying to the Lord, I'm getting you totally wrong. I'm getting you totally wrong here. I, I, I'm, I'm talking to you like you're my personal genie. I'm talking to you like you're here to serve me. And I'm getting it wrong. These guys were getting it wrong. And so, as we pick this up, Jesus kind of leads them into this. You know, what are you talking about? And then Cleopas is like, what, what do you mean, what are we talking about? Have you not been in town? Do you not know what's been going on here? And so Jesus is just blunt in verse 19. What things? What things? What, what's going on? Tell me the story. Tell me the story. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. Now, don't, don't beat them up for saying prophet, because in their mind, when they said prophet, this, this guy was up there, okay? They held Jesus in very high regard, okay? And, and, and as, as, as they're starting, starting to, to tell them about what's going on here, to tell Jesus they, they still are speaking in good terms about him. But notice the tense they use. Did they say he is a prophet? No, he was a prophet. In their minds, what's, what's happened to Jesus? He's gone. He's dead. It, 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 it really has happened. We saw it with our own eyes. We saw them put him in the tomb. We, we know he's dead. He was a great guy. I submit to you again, if they really thought he was alive, would they have left Jerusalem? I don't think so. I don't think so. And so in their minds, he's dead. And then, then they fill out the details in verse 20 about, about how Caiaphas and Annas and, and the religious leaders trumped up charges and they pretty much put, put Pilate in a corner and forced him to have to do something here. And, and he got condemned to die and he was crucified. And then I had to circle in verse 21... We had hoped. We had hoped. This is so helpful to us, church. Do you understand what's going on here? They're revealing, they're revealing their dreams. They're revealing their hopes here. 
And, and what they had hoped for is what all of Israel was hoping for, but it wasn't what Jesus had come to do at this time. They were hoping for their political Messiah to show up. They were hoping that on the triumphal Sunday, whenever he came in the week prior, and, and, and all, of, all of Jerusalem is in a stir because here comes King Jesus riding into town, they were hoping that during that week would be the week that he would amass his forces and that he would lead this resistance, and Rome would be forever thrown off the throats of Israel. That's what their hopes were. What are your hopes for Jesus? What are your hopes for Jesus? I'm hoping he'll give me really good relationships. I'm hoping he will give me perfect health. I'm hoping that, that he will give me a job that can get me to retirement and give me enough money to sail me through all that. I'm hoping that Jesus will give me, give me, give me. And yet, what does Jesus promise us? He promises us a cross that we have to pick up and carry and follow him, doesn't he? And so now, their faith is devastated. And it happens to us. When you turn Jesus into your personal genie and he doesn't deliver the way that you want him to, guess what? It rocks your world and it shakes your faith. It shakes your faith, and you start to doubt. And, and this is what they've done. The, 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 the flame that was in their heart is flickering, it is barely hanging on, and it is about to go out. And in fact, the very act of them walking away from Jerusalem is indicative that it is just about to blow out. And what's the issue here? The issue is, is they've forgotten they have forgotten. They have forgotten the words of Christ. They have forgotten exactly what he's told them was going to happen. And it's exactly what the angels had to point out to the women in verse 6 of, of chapter 24 when they come to the tomb. Remember, look back. He says, remember how he told you. Remember how he told you. So these people are in a mess. They're in a desperate mess. So secondly, I want you to see, I want you to see Christ's correction. And I want you to understand that Christ, this morning I want you to understand this, Christ is the source of understanding. He is the source. Okay? Christ is going to correct them. Look at verse 25. When someone pours out their heart to you and tells you how disappointed they are and how hurting they are and, and just how devastated they are, the last thing they want to hear is, you're an idiot. <laughs> when you're hurting, is that what you want to hear? You're an idiot. Jesus is a little nicer than I am. I would have said that, you're an idiot. But what he said here is pretty pointed. What he said here is, you are slow of heart, or you are dull, or to put it in our vernacular, you're being stupid. You're being stupid. You see it there in verse 25? Send them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Exactly where does he point them back to? He points them back to God's word, doesn't he? 
He doesn't even take them to his own words that he's giving them. He's saying this, you have known your Old Testament because that's all you've had. Why are you not believing what the prophets told you was going to happen? And then he builds the case. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Was it not necessary? And what he's telling them is this. The whole Old Testament record is given to us so that we would know why Christ, when we come to the Gospels, had to die. Was it not necessary? Was it not necessary? Lest you think that Jesus is being overly harsh, remember the words of Hebrews, the Lord loves those whom he disciplines. Sometimes the most gracious thing that can happen to somebody who is in doubt is to get a strong rebuke. Sometimes the most gracious thing that, that, that can happen is, is to just get a strong rebuke. Parents, when your kids don't believe that you're going to punish them whenever they do something wrong, what's the best thing for that kid? Nice strong rebuke, right? A nice strong rebuke. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And the point of the rebuke is this. You're not believing the word of God. There's a disconnect here. And guess what? You and I can have the same disconnect. Don't think for a second that just because you come to church on Sunday and maybe you're faithful, maybe you're a lifer here, and, and you're really good, you might participate in a Bible study somewhere else during the week, and, and maybe you memorize scripture and you read your Bible every day. Don't think for a second that it can't happen to you. And then Jesus, after he makes his point in verse 26, verse 27 is really short. It takes just a few seconds to read, but it is huge. This is the biggest verse in this whole text. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I want you to understand what's going on here. I want you to, I want you to just take this all in. The master teacher the greatest teacher of all is now going to take the greatest work of literature ever, the Old Testament, and he is going to exposit the whole Old Testament to them as they're walking on the road. That's what he's doing here. And it says he begins in Moses. Moses begins with what book, church? Genesis. Here's what Jesus does. He goes all the way back to the creation account, and he tells them that God made man in his image, and he made him good. And at the end of day six, God said it was very good. But then sin entered the picture, and then we have Genesis 3.15 where it's announced, hey, Satan, you may have won this one, but I am going to eventually win the war, right? Isn't that what Genesis 3.15 is all about? And he doesn't just stop there, because here's what Jesus preaches, and I imagine, is, and I was thinking this through this week, he works his way through the whole Old Testament, which is all about him. Who should know better to preach the Old Testament than Christ himself? 
I'm sure he explained at some point Psalm 22 in that passage where David writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm sure he goes to Isaiah 53 and he explains all about, you know, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He explains all of that. He probably talks about the Passover lamb with them and explains what the Passover lamb was all about. He talks about the day of atonement that was instituted under Moses whenever they would bring the animal in and the priest would lay his hand on the one goat and send him out, representing the sin placed on the goat and sent out of the camp. And Jesus said this, I'm the one who took the sin. Wasn't Jesus the one who took the sin? I'm sure he talked about the ram being offered in Isaac's place up there on the mountain when Abraham does that. I'm sure he talks about the serpent who's raised in the wilderness whenever the, the, the Hebrews are complaining to Moses and God strikes them with all these serpents who are biting them and he makes a brass serpent and he puts it on a pole and raises it up. I'm sure Jesus covers all of that and even more. Just stop with me for a second. Can you imagine what that would have been like to hear the master teacher teach the Old Testament? It's no wonder that they want him to come in the house. Keep going. We could sit and listen to this all day. They would have listened all night. When you and I are wrestling with doubt and confusion, what's the one place we don't want to go? When, you, when you're wrestling with God and you're full of doubt and confusion, what's, what's the last place you want to go? Just be honest. You're not going to hurt my feelings. How many of you want to go hang out with other Christians who seem all happy, normal, and doing great? Anybody want to do that? How many of you want to just stay home on a Sunday morning and feel sorry for yourself? I'm not lying. I do too. When we're wrestling with doubt and confusion, though, where do we need to be? We need to be pointed to the Word of God, don't we? Isn't that where, isn't that where we need to have our, our attention directed, is right directly to the Word of God? Jesus, it's interesting, Jesus doesn't show up and say, you idiots, it's me, Jesus. I'm alive. No, what he does is he stays incognito and he says, you idiots, believe the word of God. Right? We think to ourselves, it'd be so much easier if Jesus would just show up if I just really knew he was there. Folks, he is here. He's right here in not only in his presence, but he's here in his word. I love verse 30 because it just reminds me of the communion meal. I, I kind of alluded to this the last time I led communion. <laughs> I don't know that these two were a part of the communion meal. I, I don't know that they were there in the upper room. But, but it's interesting that Luke uses almost exactly the same language that he uses whenever the Lord's Supper is, is instituted. And he says this, he was at table with them. He took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, you may not understand this, but I'm going to point this out. There's a little interesting detail here. If you're inviting somebody into your house and serving them a meal, who's the one that should be breaking bread? The host, right? The host should be the one offering the prayer and breaking the bread. They are so enraptured what Jesus is doing. Jesus is just like, I'm hungry, let's go. And he prays and he breaks the bread. And when he does it, their eyes are opened. 
wait a minute. I know. And then he's gone. Right? Because it's not necessarily, and I don't want you to take this wrong, but it's not necessarily his physical presence that he was trying to emphasize with them. What he was trying to emphasize with them was the importance of the word of God. Because he's not going to always be physically present with them, is he? But his word is going to, to last forever and it's going to be here. And, and, and let's understand, as their eyes are open, they realize that all is not lost. All is not lost. You don't need an experience to change your heart. What you need is God's word and his spirit to change your heart. You don't need an experience to change your heart. And much of what we hear today is all about experience, isn't it? I had to have this happen to me, and, and, and God had to just like grab my attention when I saw this, you know, this, this, the way the sun rose or whatever. I saw this bird just fly in at the right moment or whatever. Poppycock. Stupidity. You don't need that. What you need is God's word. It's what you need. It's what I need. The entrance of your word brings what? Brings light. So thirdly, I want you to see that clarity and conviction are restored here. Clarity and conviction are restored. There is nothing better that when you're confused to have clarity restored, right? There's nothing better. In this case, not only does the interest of your word bring light, but in this case, it brought fire, man. It brought fire. There's no more gloom. There's no more doubt. There's no more self-pity. They're not feeling sorry for themselves anymore. They're, 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 not, they're not, you know, in this malaise that they were in. Notice what they say in verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us? When he was talking, when he was putting us to God's word, and it's not because it was Jesus that was doing it, it was because of the word of God, okay? Not diminishing the authority of Christ here, but, but, he, but notice what they said. What's the issue? When he opened to us the what? The scriptures. Understand this, friend. The last thing you want to do when you're in confusion not only is not only go to church, but you definitely don't want to stay home from church and crack open your Bible and read it. You don't understand, Pastor Dan, I get nothing out of it. Were these two people getting anything out of what they had experienced? Their experience had left them empty, hadn't it? What they needed was the Word of God to light a fire in their heart. The Word of God is what changed them. How do I know they're changed? Well, because they've just done a seven-mile hike, it's nighttime, they were ready to eat, and they leave the meal on the table, and what do they do? Seven miles in the dark back to Jerusalem. Sometimes getting your heart lit will make you do things that are inexplicable and sometimes irrational to other people, Right? They make this seven-mile trip back to Jerusalem, and they go immediately to where the 11 are, and, and they report, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. This is not the 11 saying that to them. Now, all of a sudden, they believe that he's appeared to Simon. 
Then, verse 35, they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. (laughs) Can you imagine them telling? Yeah, so he began in Genesis and he just worked his way through. And, and, and I can imagine Peter being like, no, he did not begin in Genesis and preach all the way through the Old Testament. Yes, he did. <laughs> the whole thing? The whole thing. Did he get this in there? Yes. Did that? Yes. How about Isaiah? Yes. Can I say this to you in conclusion this morning, friend? There, there is no, there is absolutely no substitute for you and for me. There's no substitute for God's word in our lives. There's none. You say, I listened to a really good podcast. That's great. That's wonderful. But if you're doing that in, in the place of reading the word of God, no. Burn your, burn your player. Burn your phone. Read the word. You might say, I wish I could have heard it straight from Jesus. Guess what? You have something better. You have the very word of God that's alive and powerful, and you have the Holy Spirit in your ear guiding you into all truth, if you're the child of God. It doesn't get any better than that. But I want to acknowledge this, because I don't want, I, the last thing I want you to do is leave here this morning and think, Oh, PD just told us to take two Bible verses and call them in the morning. Solve all of life's problems. I'm depressed right now, and he just told me, just, just go read, just go read, um, I don't know, Ecclesiastes 4.7. It's a Bible verse, right? No, no. But let's understand something. Doubt and confusion are real. They are. Part of your existence as a follower of Jesus, what part of that is, is you're going to doubt at times. You're going to get weak. You're going to fail him. And the more that you fail him and the more that you doubt, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? And you just feel lower than low. And then you come to church where everybody is doing great. I mean, every person I talked to this morning said, hey, I'm doing great, P.D., I'm like, I must be the only one here who's just kind of like, Bleh. you all are doing great. That's what you told me. Liar, liar, pants on fire. But honestly, that's the way we perceive this, right? Doubt and confusion will wreak havoc. Here's why. When you doubt, when I doubt, I am ripe for sin. I'm ripe for it. When I'm doubting, when I am doubting the promises of God, whenever I'm doubting whether or not this is really real or not, when when I'm dealing with doubt, I am opening the door for temptation to come right in, and temptation leads to sin, does it not? Church, does it not? And, And so, just think of the words of Scripture, whatever is not of faith is what? Is sin. And so when I'm dealing, when, if I'm not dealing with my doubt, if I'm not fighting my doubt, and, and really not only are we fighting sin, but we're fighting doubt as well. When I'm fighting my doubt, I'm ripe for sin if I'm not fighting it. And that is precisely, precisely, precisely the time that we need to remember the words of Christ, that, that we need to be pointed into the words of Christ. 
Maybe you know some people around you who are wrestling with doubt right now. And you wonder, what do I do with them? Just send them to Pastor Dan, right? Yeah, he's got nothing to do. It only works a day and a half a week. <laughs> right? I'm just going to send him to PD. He'll know what to do. You know what to do. The same thing that's good for your soul is good for their soul. Point them into the Word of God. Don't just point them there. Lead them into it. Say, so you know what? Maybe you and I should read some Psalms together. Maybe you and I should do this. Maybe we should get together once a week and just sit down with the Word of God and just read it together. You say, that's really? That's, that's what we do? Yeah, that's what you do. Don't I have to come up with some really wise words to say and kind of sound like Oprah or Dr. Phil? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Just sit down with the Word of God and read it together. You know what I need when I'm wrestling with doubt and confusion? I need, I need the Word of God. I had to be reminded of that this week. Thursday, I'm sitting in my office and, and trying to prepare, and, and it just seemed like it was like one interruption after another. And all these interruptions were taking me from the thing that I needed the most. <laughs> I needed the Word of God. I needed it desperately. What a blessing to have it so readily available to us. I mean, think about it. There's probably about 28 different Bible versions represented here this morning on iPhones and Android and tablets and, and everything else. It's not for a lack of availability. It's a lack of us putting ourselves in front of it, isn't it? God, forgive us, and God, give us a hunger for his word. Father, I pray for those this morning who are sitting here who are wrestling with doubt and with confusion. It's so easy to just pass it off and just say, it's just a phase I'm going through, it's just a thing. It's going to get better, I know it is, and, and then we don't do anything about it. Forgive us for doubting, because you are, your promises are sure, your word is sure. We get our vision really skewed. We, we turn Jesus into our personal genie, and when he doesn't do what we want him to do, we get really disillusioned. Forgive us for that. Thank you, Jesus, for being who you say you're going to be. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. I pray that for all of us that we would be recommitted to the words of Christ. That we wouldn't be afraid of our Old Testaments. <laughs> that we would read them and in them see, here's Jesus. Here's why I need Jesus. Here's why the world needs Jesus. We wouldn't be afraid of the Gospels that tell us all about Jesus. And we wouldn't be afraid of, of our New Testaments that, that tell us how we can live in a way that pleases you. Make us a people who are hungry for your word. Not hungry for all the stuff that the world wants to give us to consume. And believe me, God, we, we see it all around us. It's producing more than we could ever possibly consume. And we have become really good consumers. May we be consumers of the word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.